Would you grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 19? We're going to be there in just a minute. John chapter 19. If you don't have one, that's cool. There's one in front of you. John chapter 19. This is the second week of the season of Lent. Lent is a season that Christians uh, the world over observe in order to prepare them for Easter. Not every Christian observes Lent, but several thousands do. And Lent is a season in which you're fasting and praying and preparing for Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It helps us refocus and reorient our lives around the two foundational moments, not only in the church, but in the world. And so, not only are we going to pray the Stations of the Cross at the end of Lent, before Easter, we're going to walk through each Saturday seven of those traditionally twelve stations in what we're calling the Story of the Cross. And that will be our new sermon series that we're looking into tonight. You've been reading, haven't you? Have you been reading? Did y'all get a bookmark? This is our Bible reading. This is something we're doing during Lent on an individual basis. Get a bookmark. Hopefully you've been uh, tracking along with us there. If you haven't, no worries. Today is a new day. God is a God of the present, and I'm a pastor who just offers this to you. I'm not going to lord it over you. So these are for you. Um, hopefully you've been reading the devotionals by N.T. Wright. Have y'all been digging those devotionals? No, not at all. That's great. Okay. We're clapping church now. Let's clap if you like the N.T. Wright devotionals, I guess. And hopefully you've been able to discuss a time or two in your neighborhood groups. That's one way that we're doing collectively as a church, a, a discipline we are putting on to help us refocus and get ready for Lent. So what we're doing also during Lent is this new sermon series called the Stations, uh, excuse me, the Story of the Cross that is based on the Stations of the Cross. Pause real quick. Do y'all love this artwork or not? Isn't that so bad to the bone? That is Aaron Stone. And since we've clapped 80 times tonight, let's clap again and thank Aaron Stone. I'm pretty sure like he was playing around with this when he was doing our cross logo. So I love that this awesome thing is like his reject, right? Like that is so awesome. So that's going to be kind of uh, our, our aesthetic for the, the season of Lent. So we're looking at the story of the cross, walking with the stations of the cross, all in an effort to get this question into our bones. And the question is here on the screen. How do we find, do you find your story in the story of the cross? How do you find your story swept up into the broader story, the story that you've seen and heard a million times, the story of the cross? This is what the end game of Lent is to get us to, because we can't celebrate the resurrection without looking at what preceded it, the cross. Paul, when he was visiting Corinth, he said, I decided to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if Paul had one thing to say to the church in Corinth, his major main, main point all the time, every day was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because even the resurrection... And I'm a huge, huge proponent that we need more resurrection in our church culture, more focus on the resurrection. But even the resurrection is the result of what happened on Good Friday. It vindicated what happened on Good Friday. 
But the cross is the center point, the central point of not only Jesus' story, but also our story. And not only our story, but the entire story of the Scripture. We can't understand the story of the cross or our story within that story unless we're understanding the story of Israel. It's the climax of the Scriptures. It's the climax and the center point of our faith. And it's the climax and the center point of Jesus' life and ministry. And even, ultimately, the resurrection that follows us. How do we find our story in the story of the cross? Especially if it's a story that everyone in the world is familiar with. When I was a young adult pastor at the church that I was at prior to this one, Twice I took a small group of young adults to Montreal to suffer in the name of Jesus on a mission trip. Montreal is like an awesome, awesome city. Have you, has anyone been to Montreal? It's an old and beautiful, fantastic city. And it was really funny because Amy went with me one year and like it's such a different feeling North American city, even Canadian city, because it's, of course, in French Canada. And they had a law passed that in the city of Montreal, every street sign was in French. So it was just a, a, a distinct, old, European, French-feeling city. And it was really funny when Amy and I would walk into one of their bajillion coffee shops and they would know that we were not from there because not only how we dress, but we'd say, yeah, can you tell us how to get to René Lévesque? And they're like, René Lévesque? <laughs> I can't even do a French accent. And they knew that it wasn't a French accent, but it was a beautiful city. We had a great time, but we were there to partner with a sister church that looked a lot like the neighborhood church. And we were just going where they went in their city, in their neighborhoods, in their spheres of influence. And we would just engage people in conversations. And invariably, what would happen as they're getting to know our story and we're getting to know theirs, we're outed as Christians. And then all of a sudden, the story of the cross becomes front and center. And I will never, ever forget one of these conversations with a woman who was probably in her mid-30s. She was walking her dog. We were just strolling around. She struck up a conversation with us. She finds out we're Christians, and she says this. That is so disturbing to me. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you or disturb you. She said, no, 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 not just you, the whole story of Jesus. And I said, oh, man. I mean, like, it's pretty awesome because we believe he healed people, he fed people, he was like, like lifting up marginalized people. She goes, no, 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 not that part, the part. And I was like, what's the part? So she, of course, is not, uh, not of course, but she's not a Christian, but the story, the center point she grasps is the cross. And she says, no, it's the cross part that's disturbing. And she said, because when you walk into a church, you see Jesus, this sad, like, hurt, tortured person, and he's bleeding, he's bloody, it's gruesome, and she said these words, it is so gothic and disturbing. And so this for her was the headline to the story. The story of the cross, disturbing, gothic, torture. And the reality is, to some degree, she's absolutely right. And I came back to Texas, and even when I was at that church, I would still frequent the Catholic church that now Pastor Kathy, Pastor Bud, and myself meet every week to pray in. It's a Catholic church just right here at the border of Garland and Richardson, 
My grandparents go to that church, and we would visit often, or I'd just go sit there because it's a quiet place. And I remember after I got back from Montreal, thinking of the Gothic story of the cross, I sat down and I was looking at that crucifix, now with my eyes firmly kind of in the story that she is reflecting upon. You with me? So I'm trying to look through it from her eyes, and I'm saying, you know what? This is a gruesome and disturbing and shameful story. Because especially at this Catholic church, the crucifix that they had actually had blood pouring down, depicted, painted in his hands and in his feet. And it was very, very disturbing. And then I remember talking with Amy about it. And then I would say things like, yeah, but the thing about the crucifix is, is that he got off the cross, right? I mean, like, why are we so fixated on the cross? Because it really freaks people out. And if you remember The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson film, that's a hard R rating, you basically got the story saying, basically just writing the whole thing off as, it is gothic and bloody and disturbing, isn't it? Yes. I haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, but evidently Mel Gibson's up to his old tricks, (laughs) and he is just like hardcore in it. But the story to some is... This gothic and disturbing thing. But here's the thing about the story of the cross. For those with eyes to see, when you find your story in the story of the cross, something beautiful and powerful happens. You're able to look through. You are given new eyes to see through the one story of shame and you find the clearest picture of beauty. One of the ways I think about this is Jesus so graced the despicable, shameful, never mention it in polite conversation in Jesus' day cross. He so graced that cross that it has now become the most common piece of jewelry for Christians across the world. You know, I had a friend in Japan who went and saw a bunch of people wearing crosses. And he says, oh, that's interesting. Are you a Christian? He says, no, it's just like a really cool symbol. If you're able to look through the shame, you can find a clear picture of beauty. If you're able to look through that story, you see a story in which it's not just where the darkness and the deepest darkness and evil of the world pool together at the foot of the cross. You're able to look through it and see that light and love and life that Kathy prayed us through earlier actually overwhelmed the deepest darkness. So on one level, she's right, it is a gothic and disturbing place, but it's also the place where the deepest darkness and the deepest and depths of human brokenness is also overwhelmed with light and love. And see, this is the clearest picture of the cross. And so jump back with me when I'm in the Catholic church, I'm looking at this crucifix and I'm trying to sort out why am I so like iffy with this whole Jesus on the cross thing? I want to get them off the cross. I want to move on to life. And so what happened is I said, well, maybe I'll go pray these stations of the cross. And so I started at one. And I went and each time I began to think about the suffering in my life. And I began to run through my story. And I thought of the ways that I stumble. And I thought of the ways that I feel like I'm carrying a heavy load. And I thought of in the Catholic stations of the cross, the women of Jerusalem weeping and wailing. And I thought about all those people in my life who are weeping and wailing and suffering. And I'm moving from station to station to station to station to station. And I'm beginning to put my story in the light of Jesus' story. And all of a sudden, the suffering of my life didn't really have much to do and and it really paled in comparison with the suffering in Jesus's life and I began to see my story kind of swept up in it but even more than that when I was done with the stations I came back into the pew and I looked back up at that same cross that so revolted me and something clicked 
Before I was looking through the lens of this woman and the way the world sees the shameful execution. But then when I had prayed through this story and thought through my story, I looked with a new vision in which I see that the cross is the clearest revelation of God's love for us. And for some of you, you're like, well, yeah, duh. But you have to understand that the story of the cross, even in Christian circles, sounds a lot more gothic and bloody and hideous than it does a clear revelation of God's love for us. Case in point, and I know I'm talking a lot about the cross and the story of the cross. We are going to jog through John 19, and we're going to hit Jesus' story and our story. But stay with me because I want to give us a nice understanding of where we're headed with this story. The cross is the clearest revelation of God's love for us, and it snapped into view for the first time. I was able to look beyond the shame and see the beauty. I was able to look beyond the darkness and see that light has overwhelmed the darkness. And it's so funny because then when you begin to look at it through that lens, you begin to read the New Testament in an entirely different light. You see, thousands and thousands of people have been crucified on a shameful, bloody, gothic cross. But there is something palpably different about Jesus' death. Jesus' crucifixion. He wasn't even the only one crucified that day. And yet the world still seems to understand that there was something palpably different about the world Good Friday at 6 p.m. that day 2,000 years ago than it was before. And here's why. Because they begin to reflect and look back at Jesus' death on the cross and they said, you know, God is love. This is what John says in verse 1 John. He says, God is love which is powerful in and of itself because of all the things that John could say about God, he says God is love. So if you go ask the story of God out there and you say, what is God in one word? God is judge. God is wrath. God is angry. God is holy even. God is anything in the book. But John chooses God is love. But he takes it a step further and he says this several times in his letter of 1 John. He says, this is is how the God who is love showed His love among us. You ready? He gave His only Son. And if we're not convinced by John, who makes this point explicitly in 1 John, that the truest form and the truest way we know God who is love is on the cross, we look also at John 3.16. The most famous verse in the world that people who are not in our church, in our Church culture can still probably quote to you. You can quote it to me right now because you learned it at VBS when you were eight years old. For God so what? Loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But here's how I had heard that verse because of my story in the cross that I had unequally distorted. Here's how I heard it. God so hated the world that he had a child sacrifice because he was so bent out of shape he had to get his wrath and anger out on somebody. And, 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 and it sounds crazy when I say that, but my story, when I looked at the story of the cross, was, look what I did. Look what I did. I may as well have nailed him up there myself. And to some degree, I want to be clear that that is true in that we are all not quite our child of God's selves. And that it's because of this big, stinky issue of sin that Jesus had to go to the cross. 
That wasn't the primary motivation for his going to the cross. And we're going to see that in the story of the cross. And if there's one thing that we can say about it, it's not just that he died for my sin, it's that he died to watch, free us from sin. And there's a huge difference there. Because if God so loved the world, he didn't just send Jesus to stand in front of the Mack truck of his wrath that was barreling down on us, he sent Jesus as a sacrifice, an offering of love, so that he could open his arms up to the world and said, every barrier, sin, death, and Satan that has stood between you and me is getting broken down in some mysterious way on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's so much bigger than he just died for my sins. He did do that. But he also died so he could free us from sin. That he could forgive us of our sin. He could free us from the power of sin. That he could be condemned so that we would not be condemned. So that we would not condemn ourselves. And so we see in Jesus' story of condemnation that he was condemned so that in him we would not be condemned ourselves. I believe that God loved us and it was his love that motivated us to free us. I don't believe that the chief issue in God's heart was that he was condemning us and therefore he had to take it out on Jesus because otherwise he was going to burn us up. The cross is the clearest picture and it is because God loved the world who hated him back that he gave Jesus that we should find life and not death. Because left to our own devices, we are headed toward death and destruction. But Jesus came before he hit the cross and he said, turn to me, turn to me, come to me, come to me. Why? I've come so that you would have life and have it to the full. Because the way you're headed at this moment, you're headed to death. So turn to me, come to me, that you would have life. And because in station two we're going to see tonight, Jesus will take up his cross. He takes up his cross so that if we would do that, we would find that life that he promised. Are you with me? So now that I've built this really long and big front porch about how the cross is the clearest picture of God's love for us, we want to look at these stations and begin our story of the cross so that we might find our story and find that when we look to the cross, we don't just see shame and blood and gothic, but we look beyond it and we see that the power of love overwhelmed all of our sin, shame, and death. You with me? Let's jog through John 19, and then we're going to hit a couple points at the end for our station, and then we're going to uh, wrap up and uh, celebrate that sacrifice in communion and song. Ooh, since my mic is going out. So we start tonight with Jesus' condemnation. Look with me in John chapter 19. We're going to jog through. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. What has just happened the night before is Jesus was handed over to the Jewish leaders who had a night-long trial trying to get Jesus to plead guilty to charges that were worthy of death. But the problem is, the Jewish people didn't have the authority to go kill Jesus. Why? Because they were under the empire of Rome. You with me? So they get Jesus condemned by their law, and then they're sending him up the ladder to Pilate, who has questioned Jesus in the end of chapter 18, and they're going to see if he can do their dirty work to get Jesus up out of the way. 
So they've tried him all night. They catch Pilate when he steps into the office on Friday morning. And Pilate has him flogged. And then the soldiers, verse 2, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. So what's happening is the soldiers, of course, are imitating a prince. They've got a crown on his head and a purple royal robe on his back. And then they say this, you see that? Hail, King of the Jews. We enter in immediately to the political meaning of the cross. Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus was the Messiah that had been sent by God to liberate the Jewish people, God's people. But as we just read in John chapter 1, at the beginning of John's story, he says he came to his own people, but his own people did not what? Receive him. They didn't welcome him. They had been longing for the Messiah. Here he is. Here is their chosen king. And they turn on him. But it's a political meaning because that term king means that he's got a kingdom. He's got a reign. And so all four Gospels clearly teach these truths about Jesus. Two things the Gospels are driving at every time. It ain't just a spiritual reality. It is a political reality for an actual people. The first thing that the four Gospels clearly teach is this. Jesus is the long-expected king of Israel. And if you look back at Genesis 12... We've quoted that a lot in this church. That's because that's when Israel first began through a guy named Abraham. And God sought Abraham and invited him to partner with God and say, Look, dude, I'm going to make a whole nation of you. And through your nation, a king will come and bless all nations of the world. So, Jesus is that long-expected king that ain't just for Israel, but through him, somehow the whole world will be blessed. You with me? But then what we see page after page after page after page after page of the Gospels is that Jesus is the kind of king that nobody really expected. And isn't it interesting, if you look back to your Bible in chapter 18, verse 36, that they didn't arrest his followers. If he was a king, if he was a Messiah, if he was supposed to overthrow the empire that is oppressing his people, why didn't they arrest his followers? Because it wasn't a military national coup that was happening. Look at verse 36 of chapter 18. When Pilate's questioning him, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. It's political, but it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than the power games of politics. You with me? If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So they don't arrest the followers of Jesus, even though there's this political idea that he is the king of the Jews. And if he is king, then he's a rebel king that is standing against, in opposition to Pilate and his king Caesar. So they're mocking him. And they're saying, hey, here's the Jewish king. And then once more in verse 4, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you. So he's got his crown and his robe. He says, I want you to know that I find no basis of a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man. So what Pilate's doing, before you think that he's the hero of this story, Pilate has a track record in which he wants to do the opposite of everything that the Jews want. 
He's the big brother when somebody, the little brother, asks for, you know, hey, can I have a bite? He goes, yeah, eats the whole thing and says, sorry. He's the guy that if you ask him to do something, he's going to do the opposite. So he's not really thrilled about Jesus. He probably is kind of ambivalent to him. In other Gospels, he's actually kind of afraid to kill him because he knows that there is a bunch of people who are kind of digging what he's saying. But he's really interested at this point in keeping peace and trying to find a way to outmaneuver the Jews and not give them what they want. You with me? So he says, here's Jesus. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. So what's happening is they're saying, look, we couldn't kill him. We need you to kill him. And here's why. Pilate says, you take him and crucify him, even though he knows they can't. And he says this, as for me, again, I find no basis of charge against him. But they insisted, verse 7, we've got a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be what? The son of God. So they've condemned Jesus because their law in Deuteronomy 13, if you're taking notes, you can write down Deuteronomy 13 and then Deuteronomy 18.20. They said, hey, he's a false prophet who's leading Israel astray. He's got a whole mess of people who are digging what he's saying, thinking he's the king and this is the kingdom. He's leading our people astray. So they've said, look, he's claimed to be the son of God. And Jesus basically pleaded guilty. If you read the trial before this, he condemned himself by saying, you'll see the son of man. He's putting himself right up there alongside God. And so they freak out about it. So he gets kicked up to the totem pole. Now he's sitting here with Pilate. And they're saying, look, we've got to kill him. Verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Why? Because Pilate's a polytheist. And they just said he says he's a son of God. So now Pilate takes a step back and says, wait a minute, dude. I know another son of God, Caesar. Caesar was spoken of as the Son of God, and he's a pretty big deal. If there is any truth to what these Jews are saying, I need to watch out because I don't know what kind of power he's carrying. And so Pilate is now really taken aback. So he goes back to the palace and he says, Jesus, you've got to tell me where do you come from? And what does Jesus do? Stone cold, doesn't say anything. So Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And then Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Basically, he's saying there are powers at work that are way above your pay grade. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you, who handed him over, these priests, these leaders is guilty of a greater sin. Stick with me, here's what he's up to. Jesus was the Jewish king, but his own people didn't receive him. Even worse, they're sending him up to be crucified. His own people reject him, and here's how they do it. When Pilate is trying to set him free, the Jewish leaders paint themselves into a corner, and they say, Pilate, if you let this rebel king go, you are no friend to your true king, Caesar. Did you see that there? He says, what would happen if you let this guy go? What if Caesar finds out? 
You are fired, basically, or worse. So then, Pilate, who was afraid that he might be the Son of God, verse 13, he says, okay, enough's enough. And he sits down and casts judgment. And he says, here is your king. And in verse 15, they say, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And he says, shall I crucify your king? He says this, the Jewish leaders, now what they've done is this. They've aligned themselves with the power that is not God. They say the most disgusting and blasphemous thing in the Gospel of John. We have no king but Caesar. Jump back to verse 14, and we're going to drill this home. Jesus is being condemned to death. And that's where our story begins. But the when of the story is just as crucial. When all of this is taking place on Friday, John tells us it was the day of preparation. You see that? Of the Passover. So the when is crucial. Here's the when. The day of preparation. This is what it is and it's on the screen. It's the day that the priests slaughter the sacrificial lambs that they would eat at sundown when Passover begins. So while Jesus is standing before the crowd and Pilate, in the temple courts, the priests are taking lambs and they're slaughtering them as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And so what's going on is they are preparing to signify the great freedom festival known as Passover, which is the time that begins at sundown. So this is what Passover is. They're preparing for the freedom festival when God's people looked back. They looked back to Exodus when God passed over and liberated the firstborn so that he could prepare to break the power of Pharaoh who enslaved his people so that he could liberate the enslaved people. So they looked back and said, remember when God acted big time and rescued us. But they also look forward to when God would act again to break the deeper powers of sin, death, and Satan and then liberate the enslaved world. So just like we do in Advent, we look back to when Jesus came the first time. We also look ahead to when Jesus will come again. They put themselves as the Jewish people on the day of Passover. They were amped up, hyped up. They were having a big old kind of Christmas dinner. And they're looking back to when God rescued and enslaved people. And they were praying for God to come and do it again. Here's the irony of the people who said, we've got no king but Caesar. The prayer they prayed at Passover said, we have no king but God. You are my king. Here's the irony of the Jewish leaders who represented the Jewish faith from which Jesus came. Daily they prayed for the Messiah to come. Daily they prayed for the king of God to come. And he's here and they say, we have no king but Caesar. So what they've done when they've said this is they've aligned themselves with the enslaving powers that God is getting ready to liberate them from. Are you with me now? So when Jesus is condemned, he's condemned by his people who have gotten on board with the enslaving people. 
Jesus is the king that was condemned by his people, yet for his people. If you read Isaiah 53, which we don't have time for this evening, you see that we considered, Israel considered him stricken by God. We see him that his own people rejected and despised him. We see that he suffered, that he was led away by his own people. It is all happening in this present tense moment during the Passover when God was going to definitively, in a new and radical way, actually liberate and save these people. But not through war, but through suffering. It's all happening, but their eyes are blind because they see one story that is just get him out of the way, bloodied, torture, get him done. But for us who have eyes to see, what we see happening is God is getting ready. The moment they sit down to eat the Freedom Festival Passover dinner is when Jesus will die on the cross at 6 o'clock at sundown. So Jesus is condemned, and the moment they sit down to celebrate is the moment that we are now allowed to not face condemnation. Romans 8.1 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And it says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you what? Free from what? The law of sin and death. So what happens because Jesus was condemned is we no longer have to face condemnation. So when you feel rejected by your own people, know that Jesus knows what you're going through. When you're rejected by your own heart and you say, God, where are you? Know that Jesus felt that condemnation when he said, God, why have you forsaken me? And even before the cross on the garden, he says, God, if there's any other way, I feel rejected and alone and I need out of this. Jesus knows what you're talking about. He knows how it feels when your own heart begins to question who God is. And he, he was condemned so that your own heart would not condemn you. In 1 John it says, when our own hearts condemn us, God who's greater than our hearts will restore us. The shame that we feel when we condemn ourselves as unworthy is anti-Christ. And you look to the cross and you see Jesus bearing all of this shame, naked, bloodied, tortured, so that through this you might get a glimpse at the deeper story and see that God has said, no more condemnation for you. No more shame for you. Shame is anti-Christ. But when we get the glimpse of the cross that your sin and your terribleness was the only end-all, be-all to the story, you begin to see the cross as that gothic, bloodied picture and what you feel is guilt and shame rather than the freedom from guilt and shame. We've got to rethink the story of the cross. The New Testament is explicit. This is the big, blazing center of God's love for us. Yes, our sin held him there, but it was so that he could dismantle it so that we would no longer feel its sting and shame. So if you feel ashamed when you sin, run to the cross and know that he's freed you from it. It's done. Colossians 2 says that every single sin was nailed to the cross. It was nailed 2,000 years ago, so in 20 minutes when you sin, it's already been dealt with. 
Every single sin was dealt with on the cross of Jesus. So let us not be a people of condemnation and shame. And by God's grace, may we not go in shame and condemn others. Because when we shame and condemn others, we put ourselves in the story, in the second station of the cross, as the crowd which is mocking and shaming Jesus. So in verse 17 it says, When Pilate hands him over, the soldiers took him and carrying his own cross, he went out. He had to go out because he was in the center part of the city and the Romans did all of their crucifying just outside the city walls. They did it just outside the city walls so that anybody coming in and coming out would see this is what we do with people who say they're kings. This is what we do when people say that they've got a kingdom that's better than the Roman kingdom. But what Jesus had to do to get to the outside of the city was put the cross beam and we'll see in a few stations that he couldn't even do it by himself because he was already so chewed up. But he took the cross and he walked this painful path Tradition puts it in probably the wrong place, but you can walk the path as a tour in Rome. And it can be a deeply spiritual experience for you today, but the story of that day was one of shame. One where Jesus' own disciples didn't want to help him with his own cross. He's walking through and he's getting the shame and the insults and the mocking and the spitting. He took up his cross and he's walking to the outside toward where he would finally be dead. And I wonder if Peter, who had already denied him, I wonder if he was on the outside looking in and seeing all the insults. And I wonder if he had ringing in his ears the words of Luke 9, 23-24 that he had heard Jesus say so many months before. If anybody would come after me, whoever wants to be my disciple, would they deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Why would we ever want to get in league with that shame that Jesus faced? Well, Jesus set us free from that shame. So when we unite with him in this cross, we see that it's the victory over shame. And why would we want to be involved with that cross? It's a symbol of death. Because if we're in Christ, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Death no longer has that mastery over us. In verse 24 of Luke 9, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. When you take up the cross of Jesus, you find life even if you lose your life. When you deny yourself and say no to your way, you begin to see that there's life on the other side. To give us life, Jesus gave up his life. That's the story of the cross. The clearest demonstration of the love of God that he was condemned so that you would not have to be condemned. He bore the shame so that you would no longer have to bear the shame when you wear the cross and take it up yourself to die. So when we find ourselves rejected in our stories, would you remember that we stand with the Savior who was rejected and turned on by his people, but he still forgave them? When your own heart condemns you and you feel the shame and the weight, would you run to the cross and remember that in Jesus Christ there is now no more condemnation for you? No more condemnation. He wants you free and alive. And when you're tempted to walk away, when you feel the weight of shame and how Jesus' way is so much different 
Remember the call to take it up anyway and walk with him because on the other side of your denial and your death is life in him. We begin our journey, the story of the cross, looking beyond the surface and seeing that there is so much love and so much power that defeated sin, death, and Satan. And I hope that as we continue to take this journey, that you will find your story swallowed up in the powerful story of the cross that was an end to sin, death, and shame. So let's get there by God's grace. Will we pray? Lord, thank you for together, to gather together as your people. May we be a people who gather at the feet of the cross and find an end to our shame and to find a way forward as we take up our own crosses and follow you to find life. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. May God bless you with a restless discomfort about easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may seek truth boldly and love deep within your heart. May God bless you with holy anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may tirelessly work for justice, freedom, and peace among all people. May God bless you with the gift of tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, or the loss of all that they cherish, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and transform their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you really can make a difference in this world, so that you are able with God's grace to do what others claim cannot be done. Go in peace.